I hate exercising. I know you're not supposed to say that publicly. It's like socially inappropriate to say, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I hate it. Because um, like before I had kids, I, I did it a lot, almost every day. And I even ran triathlons. But now that I have kids, the only event I complete in is compete in is the toddler 2400-365. And this is a particular event where you do really crazy athletic feats such as chase down and tackle the two-year-old who wants to be buck naked all day and try to dress him. It, it has like crawl under the couch and behind the couch and locate the missing Spider-Man Velcro shoes so the preschooler stops yelling at you. Um, dodge the, the, the matchbox car that's been launched in the air by the hungry, overtired, two-foot-tall tyrant. And so you just do these weird things as a parent, and I think that that should somehow count as exercising. Now, the only diet I've done lately is that my son wanted half my bagel, and I was too tired to make another bagel, and so I dieted until lunch. I haven't really seen the results yet, but I'm really looking forward to how that's going to make an impact on my life. I just kind of feel like at some point, the exercise should stick. You know, like you've done enough bicep curls in your lifetime or enough sit-ups, like you hit 5,000 sit-ups and then you get a phone call from someone and they just say, congratulations, you have now completed the exercise portion of life. And... And you're entering in the Haagen-Dazs and donut phase of life. Enjoy. Like, why doesn't that ever happen? And we just feel this guilt. We feel this pressure um, to do things that we think we should do, like as a mom. I see all these other moms posting things on Facebook, and they're like these crafts that they did with their toddlers. And their toddlers are perfectly groomed, and they're all in coordinating matching outfits on a Thursday morning. And I look around my house, and it appears that a toy exorcism has taken place. And toys are like oozing up out of the cracks of our home. And as I scan the living room, there's nine mismatched, really, I counted, nine mismatched socks laying on the floor and a very suspicious pair of Superman underwear under the end table. And then I see my son, my youngest, and he has a fork, and he's crawled under the table, underneath his brother's chair, and he's eating something off the floor that may or may not have been food. And I think to myself, should I post this on social media? That like my accomplishment as a day, as a mom, is that my youngest son used a fork? Because being a mom is hard, being a parent is hard, and there's this constant competing, constant comparing that goes on, that leaves us wondering at the end of the day, am I good enough? Am I doing enough? Am I, am I okay as a human, as a parent? And we live with this nagging sense sometimes of failure. This nagging sense, a haunting sense that somehow, in spite of all of our efforts, that, that we're not enough. And this is not how we were meant to live. The truth is that we have been made worthy by Christ Jesus. And all of this comparing, all of this measuring comes in the form of what I'll refer to this morning as the expectation gap. The expectation gap is the gap between where we are right now and where we wish we were. 
The gap between where we are right now and where we want other people to think we actually are. And this expectation gap is the source of a ton of guilt and shame. And a ton of that feeling of not being enough comes from it. And the gap can exist in our life in a ton of different areas. The workout gap, the dieting gap, the parenting gap, the professional gap, the educational gap, the marriage relationship gap, the yard work gap, the friendship gap, the money gap. We can have gaps in all kinds of areas of our life. And what we usually do with the gap is we try to hide it. We try to pretend that it's not there, and we spend a lot of time and a lot of effort covering it up and hoping that no one will ever discover the gap. Many people live their entire lives with a fear that their gap is going to be discovered, and they will be found out as not being good enough in some area of life. There's three emotions that I see that arise from these gap issues. And we're going to take a look at all three of them today because a lot of times people use these words interchangeably, but they in reality are incredibly different. The three emotions are conviction, guilt and condemnation, and shame. And these words are not interchangeable. They have very distinct differences and operate very differently in our lives. So let's take a look at the first one, conviction. When we sin or we fall short in some area of our life from God's perfect standard, God gives us a gift. And that gift is conviction. Conviction is a gift from God that allows us to feel that check, that Um, that quickening in our spirit that just sort of alerts us like, "Uh uh-oh, something's not right. And that is a true gift from God because God knows that when we sin, separation comes into our relationship, a gap between us and him. And God knows the more we go on sinning and the more we go on ignoring that conviction, the bigger and bigger and bigger the gap becomes between us and him. Our intimacy is disrupted and separated by our sinning. And so he gives us a gift because he does not want us to be unaware that we have sinned. And yes, we can read and study the Bible, and we should read and study the Bible, but in a moment of our mistake, God gives us the gift of conviction, and right then we know, like, oh, shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have done that. And we can quickly pause, apologize to our Heavenly Father, turn and get back on track. And in doing that, our intimacy with God, our connection with God, is no longer separated, it's no longer disrupted, we no longer are off track. Now when we hear that God convicts us, some people flash to an image in their mind of like God, like this prosecuting attorney in his slick suit, and he's angry and he's trying to convict us of some huge crime. He's in our face wanting to make us pay. But When we learn that God convicts us, that's not the image that comes to mind at all. Jesus is speaking in John chapter 16, verse 8, and he's talking about how the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us. And listen to the tone of this verse. Verse 8, Jesus says, When the Helper, which we learn in other parts of the Bible, is a reference to the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of its sin. He will show the world about being right with God. See the emphasis there? Jesus is saying the conviction helps us. It helps us 
Not to get in trouble, but it helps us to be right with God. God, the Holy Spirit, convicts us so that we can get back on track with him. And this is an incredible blessing that he gives us. This word in the Greek that's translated in, in John 16, 8 as convict, in other places in the New Testament, it's translated as convince. The Holy Spirit convinces us of our sin. He, he, he points it out and he reminds us, hey, that's against God's standard. Romans 2, 4 lets us know that godly sorrow or conviction leads us to repentance and that it is the kindness of God that draws us to repentance. So when the Holy Spirit convicts us, it's firm, it's clear, but it's not angry and vindictive and damning. It's not like that at all. And here's the key difference between the emotion of conviction and the other two that we're gonna talk about this morning. When we repent, apologize, and turn from our sin, the emotion of conviction lifts. After we repent, we should not feel that check or that quickening inside of us anymore. It, it lifts off of us because it has done its job. Its job is to get us to repent. If we repent, it goes away. Because the Bible says in John, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we repent, that conviction leaves because our sins are remembered no more. Because they are thrown, the Bible says, into the sea of forgetfulness. They're no longer in between us and God. The conviction should leave. But if it doesn't lift then you may not be dealing with conviction at all. You may be dealing with the second emotion, which is guilt and condemnation. Now, let me be clear because the Bible is very clear. The Bible says we are all guilty of sinning. We are all, we have all sinned, not one of us is perfect, Romans chapter three, and God declares that we are not guilty because of Christ's death on the cross. When we ask Jesus for forgiveness, we ask him to come into our life, then all of a sudden, though we were guilty, we are supernaturally unguilty. I know that's a little bit tricky, but I want you to hang in there with me. This, this idea of being guilty of sin, think of that as a verb. That's an action word. We are guilty of a sin because we have done the action of sinning. And Jesus covers that. The second emotion we're talking about, think of that as an adjective, a descriptive word. It's the feeling we get when we are guilty of a sin and we begin condemning ourselves after we've apologized to God. Number two, guilt and condemnation is an emotional pressure that comes from the weight of past or present actions in our life. An emotional pressure. And it is an emotion that God never puts on the life of a believer. He never inflicts us with a haunting feeling, a condemning feeling of guilt, especially over something that we've already repented of. So if we feel that feeling still linger, we can be confident that God is not the source of it. Revelations chapter 12, verse 10, gives the devil a very fitting nickname. It calls, calls him the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brethren. And this is what the devil does. He spends a lot of time and energy getting in our face and accusing us of wrong actions. Now notice that the, the Bible specifically says, of the brethren. Because what the devil does, he doesn't usually mess with people and accuse people outside of the family of God. He ignores them. He focuses on the brethren or the brothers or 
the believers. He goes after those of us who have a relationship with Christ, and he tries to make us feel unworthy of the relationship that Christ has paid for us. That's why sometimes a non-believer can do something that we all know is a sin, and they don't really feel that much remorse about it. But us as believers, we do that same action, and we can feel the conviction and then guilt. Even after we've repented, we still can feel weighed down by that because the accuser is doing his job in accusing us. So the voice that whispers in your ear that says, I can't believe you lost your temper with your son. There is no way you're ever going to fix that. Or a godly man wouldn't have clicked on that. How dare you call yourself a Christian? Okay, that's the accuser of the brethren. That's not the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when he convicts us, does not sound angry and damning and like it's unfixable. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, he always brings us hope and options to return to God. Conviction sounds like for the same two things. You need to apologize to your son. You really hurt his feelings. It's time to make this right. Or you need accountability for your computer time. You need to talk to God. You need to talk to your wife. You need to get some of that software that blocks those kinds of sites. My grace is sufficient for you. Major difference between how the Holy Spirit convicts us and how the accuser of the brethren guilts us. Conviction draws us to God, but guilt pushes us away. Conviction leads to repentance, which restores our relationship with God. But guilt makes us feel stupid and unworthy and too guilty to come close to God. Guilt makes us hide from God in fear that God doesn't want to be around us because we know we're guilty and we think God will be mad at us too. Guilt causes us to avoid God, where conviction causes us to run to God. And friends, this is an essential distinction in our relationship with God. God uses conviction, but the devil twists and manipulates that into guilt. We are guilty, and so we condemn ourselves, and we think God condemns us too. But as a believer, condemning guilt has no place and no legal right in our lives. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's take a look at that word, condemnation. It's used three times in the New Testament, and it means damnatory sentence, an adverse sentence as a result of a verdict, condemnation. And God is saying that has no place in the life of those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So condemning guilt, if it's not addressed or dealt with, it devolves even further into shame in our life. And shame is the third emotion that we're going to take a look at this morning. Shame is not guilt. Shame is a focus on self-value. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Guilt is, I did something bad. Shame is, I am bad. You getting that? So Imagine it this way, how many of you would be willing to say, if you did something that you knew hurt me, would be willing to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, right? How many of you, raise your hand, willing to say, I made a mistake, right? Most of us, that's no-brainer, I made a mistake, that's guilt, I made a mistake. Shame is, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. Okay, significant difference between the two. 
Shame attacks our identity. Shame attacks who we are. Shame makes us think we are the mistakes that we have made or that because we made them for some reason we're not good enough and we're not gonna be good enough and we're always lacking. Shame goes after our identity and it is highly correlated with addiction, aggression, bullying, eating disorders, violence, suicide, drug abuse, self-medicating, alcohol abuse. Shame attacks our identity and it goes after who we are. It's that gremlin that whispers in our ear, I know what happened to you as a child. You're ruined. Shame whispers, I know the truth of what your marriage has become and it's never going to recover. Shame says things like, I know your husband cheated on you, but you, you deserved it. Your son won't even talk to you. You're a horrible parent. Shame whispers those kind of lies that, that undercuts who we are as children of God. And it attempts to haunt us in two big ways. It whispers things like, you are never good enough. Or who do you think you are? Shame often comes as a result of a myth. And that myth is, do it all, do it perfectly, and never let them see you sweat. Shame is a web of conflicting, competing expectations of who we're supposed to be. And when we can't meet all those expectations, we find ourselves caught in the expectation gap. We feel shame, and that shame becomes to us like a straitjacket where we can hardly move or breathe. Let's take a look at the life of the Apostle Peter, a man of God, as he wrestles with each of these three emotions this morning. Set the stage. Peter is in the upper room with Jesus. It's the Last Supper, the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. And Jesus makes a prediction. He says he's going to be arrested. And when he is, all the disciples are going to scatter. And Peter says, no way, Jesus, not me. I'm, I'm going to be with you to the death. I'm not afraid. And then Jesus has to call Peter out. He's like, actually, Peter, you're going to blow it pretty big. It's going to be embarrassing, and um, you're going to deny even knowing me three times before the rooster crows. And then, shortly after that, Jesus is arrested. So we'll grab the story in Luke 22, verse 54, and it says, So they arrested him and led him to the high priest's home, and Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat around it, and Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man is one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't even know him, he said. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you, you must be one of them. No, man, I'm not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them because he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. So get a picture of this scene, right? Peter's at the fire. Jesus is at a slight distance, and he's being beaten up. And Peter's watching this go down, and he's accused of knowing Jesus. And when he denies Jesus three times, Jesus turns in the middle of his beating, locks eyes with Peter. What's Jesus trying to do by turning and looking at Peter in verse 61? I think he's trying to remind Peter of a moment they had 
30 verses ago in the upper room when Jesus said in the same chapter of Scripture, verse 31, it says, Simon Peter, Simon Peter, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I have pled in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. I think Jesus was locking eyes with Peter trying to say, hey, I know you just blew it. I heard the rooster crow. I know what happened. Turn back to me and repent and be restored. He's trying to draw Peter back into relationship. This is a picture of conviction. But Peter doesn't respond to that conviction. Instead, Peter moves from conviction to guilt and from guilt to shame. Because at the end of this chapter, it says in verse 62, and Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. Now it doesn't say Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly and ran and fell to his knees and cried out to God, forgive me, I blew it, I denied Jesus, right? It doesn't say any of that. It just says he wept. So instead of confessing his sin, he shamed himself for his sin and it built into this huge Thing in Peter's mind. He did not allow the conviction to bring him right back to God. He avoids it and he hides it. So then what happens is Jesus is crucified, died, and buried. On the third day, he rose again. And the women come back to Peter and the disciples and say, the Lord's body is missing. And Peter takes off running and he gets to the tomb and he sees that Jesus' body is gone. He's been resurrected. And Peter's eyes are open and he understands all the scriptures that had to be fulfilled with the crucifixion and why Jesus died and what it all meant. And he's like pumped about Jesus, right? And then Jesus appears later and shows him his hands and his feet and it's mind-blowing. And they're, they're filled with joy and they're thrilled at what God has done. But still, Peter is rattled. He's rattled. He's uncertain. He feels guilt. He feels ashamed. He's confident in Jesus. Jesus is resurrected. Jesus is who he said he was. But he feels far from God himself. Peter doesn't know what to do or how to do it. And guilt and shame continue to keep him from responding to God's conviction. And so in John chapter 21, verse 3, Peter makes a statement. He says, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. And in our American culture, it's easy to be like, good idea, Peter. It's been a long week. Your buddy Jesus has died. It's been messy. You know, get a sack lunch, grab a fishing pole, get some buddies, go to the lake, decompress, relax, kind of process your loss and stuff. But that's not what's being talked about at all. Peter, if you remember, is a commercial fisherman. And he, and he works with James and John, commercial fishermen. And they say, let's go fishing. They go into storage and they haul out their commercial fishing boat with their commercial fishing nets. What they're saying is, I give up on Jesus. I give up on the ministry. I give up on this Jesus stuff. Jesus is great, but I'm not worthy to be a disciple or an apostle or a leader. That's not my job. My, I'm, I'm going back to fishing. Peter was shaken. He lost his confidence in his identity in God. And he said, I'm not worthy to be a friend of Jesus or a son of God or a leader of the church. Even though Jesus said, you're the rock, Peter, on whom I'm going to build my church. Peter has yet to repent for denying Christ. And so he's shaken. He's guilty. He's shamed. He's withdrawing. He's losing track 
of his destiny and who God created him to be. So the disciples, a handful of them, they're out fishing all night. They're working. They're not fishing during the day. They're working all night, the Bible says. It's so much work that they, they take off their regular clothes. They put on their work tunics. And all night long, they're fishing with the nets, and they catch nothing. And so in the end, Jesus shows up on the beach with some fish, right? And he starts making some breakfast. And there's this crucial conversation that happens between Jesus and Peter. Where Jesus calls him out on the mistake, convicts him, Peter repents. Jesus restores him and strengthens his identity, asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Once for each time he denied Jesus and he strengthened Peter in his purpose and identity. And then Peter's able to shake it off and move past it. Because of that intimate moment. As believers, we must respond to the conviction of God, but reject the lure of guilt and shame. We have to be able to respond to the conviction without getting sucked into the guilt and the shame. Because shame is an epidemic in our culture. And to get out from underneath it, to get back to God and back to one another, we have to be able to see how shame affects us, to understand how it affects the way we worship and the way we live and the way we parent and the way we work and the way we communicate and the way we go through our life and our marriage. These insane expectations that we set up for ourselves that create the expectation gap they're not based on one-on-one -on -one relationships we have with real people. They're based on the highlight reel on social media. They're based on reality TV shows. Because the truth is when we get really honest with one another and we start talking to each other about what's going on in our lives, we'll find that all the people in our lives that we're close to have the same gap. And even some of the people that we think, that woman's an awesome mom, or, or that, that dad is a very hard worker and an amazing provider, everyone still has the gap. And so the way we view them is based on fake expectations. And that kills growth. So what has to begin to happen is we have to begin to say to God and to one another, our stories of our failure. We have to be able to say, here's the gap. We have to be willing to show one another where we fell short, where we failed. Because the two most powerful words when someone's struggling is, me too. I have nine socks laying in my living room too. I have Superman underwear under the end table. Me too. I don't know what's going on with my teenager. Me too. I'm struggling in my marriage. Me too. I don't know how to get enough going on in the economy to, to financially provide, me too. And so when we're willing to say the standards we have are, are too, they're unrealistic, and we're able to communicate and be vulnerable and share with one another, then all of a sudden, the change begins to happen. What I would like us to do is just right in your seats, just take a moment and close your eyes. And I want us to evaluate each of the three emotions that we talked about this morning. Each of the three emotions, starting with conviction. I want each one of us to take a minute and search our heart and ask ourselves, is there something in my life that the Holy Spirit is convicting me about? An attitude, an action, a behavior of some kind. The Holy Spirit is letting me know it's wrong, but I've yet to repent of it. And if something comes to mind, Holy Spirit's convicting you 
take a moment right now and repent of it. Repentance would be a very simple prayer in the privacy of your heart where you acknowledge to God, God, I was wrong when I did blank. Please forgive me. Please restore me back to relationship. Don't let any intimacy be lost between me and you, God. I was wrong. I blew it. And this concept of God, the Holy Spirit, convicting us, it's a daily thing. You might find yourself responding to the conviction of God on a regular basis. And that's a beautiful thing. It's the gift that the Holy Spirit gives us. Once we confess or admit to God and apologize, the conviction should lift. And if it doesn't, it might mean that you're dealing with more guilt than you realize. Sometimes one of the reasons we can't let go of the mistakes in our lives from the past are we know we never made it right with that person. And so maybe as you're searching your heart and you're looking at things that you know that you're guilty of, mistakes that you've made, you recognize there's somebody you need to seek out and apologize to. You need to admit to your grown child that you lost it during that particular fight and you're sorry. Maybe you need to make a phone call. Maybe you need to stop by someone's house. But if you know that there's something, you're not letting go of that guilt because there's somebody you need to make it right with and make it right today. For some of you, it's hard to make that right with that person because that person's no longer here. Maybe it's a parent that's gone on to be with the Lord. And if that's the case, then what you might need to do is forgive yourself. And there's a lot of reasons that we might need to forgive ourselves, but sometimes when we can't get past the guilt, it's because we are not, we're condemning ourselves, we're judging ourselves still harshly for that action or that attitude that we had in that moment. And so maybe in this moment, you make a choice and you forgive yourself for that habit, that decision, that attitude. And friends, that, that looks very simply like a statement. I choose to forgive myself. I no longer condemn myself. I no longer consider myself guilty for fill in the blank. Take just a moment to do that. As we go into the third emotion, the emotion of shame, I'd like to invite everyone in the room to stand to their feet. Let's still keep our eyes closed once we're settled again. I want to keep the spiritual moment kind of going. And I, I wonder if there's anyone that would say, you know what, the truth is, Shame has crept into how I see myself. I realize that I, I'm like straitjacketed by shame. With everyone's eyes closed, if you would admit that this morning and you would say so in asking God for help as you do, would you lift up your hand? Shame has gotten a hold. That's awesome. Guys, for the benefit of those who raised their hands, let's pray this prayer together. Dear God, I accept your forgiveness. 
I accept who you say that I am. I reject shame in Jesus' name. I bind up shame in Jesus' name. And I ask you, God, to reveal to me who I really am and how you really see me. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, I want us all to remember that when God looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness in us. And as you leave this morning, know that, that between you and God, of all those things that maybe you turned from or repented of, Jesus' blood covers all, and you go in that freedom. I love you guys. We all love you, and we'll see you next Sunday morning.